Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Military Medicine Podcast, hosted by Matt Kane and myself, James Coote. In this episode, we interview Major Tom Fletcher, who's an expert on viral hemorrhagic fevers such as Ebola. Tom treated patients in both Guinea and Sierra Leone during the 2014 Ebola outbreak, for which he was awarded an MBE. In this fascinating interview, Tom takes us on a whistle-stop tour of viral hemorrhagic fevers, shares his experiences of treating these patients, and finally we discuss innovations in care for these often deadly diseases. Though we usually round out the introduction by reeling off our guests' Sunday afternoon pastimes, or perhaps their biggest determinants of success, we've shelved those today for this fantastic snippet from our introductory chat with Tom. We hope you enjoy it. What's the, I mean, this is a bit of a personal question, you don't have to answer this one. What's the worst infectious disease you've ever had? Um, well, I got isolated after coming back from Sierra Leone, uh, with people thinking I probably had Ebola after looking after a lot of cases there in the beginning. Um, but then it ended up being a nasty dose of norovirus from the kids. <laughs> that caused quite a lot of concern, as you can imagine, amongst <laughs> mainly my wife and others. I was pretty convinced it wasn't Ebola, but uh, it did generate a bit of excitement in, in public health in England, etc. We hope you enjoyed what we believe must be one of the most understated near-death experiences that, that we've ever heard, at least. <laughs> now onto the podcast proper. Major Tom Fletcher, thank you very much for joining us. So today we're going to be talking about viral hemorrhagic fevers, area of your interest. So first of all, can you just explain to everyone, what are viral hemorrhagic fevers and can you give us some examples of which viruses cause them? Sure. So, so viral hemorrhagic fevers is a group of infections caused, caused by viruses, an RNA type of virus. And generally, they're associated with high case fatality rates, often with bleeding and severe disease, and there's not very good treatments for them. And the, the most common ones that we, we think about when we, we discuss viral hemorrhagic fevers are Lassa fever, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, and then Ebola virus. And how contagious are they? It really depends on what stage of illness you're at. So at the very beginning, when people just have a fever and a non-specific illness, they're not really infectious at all. But as people get sicker and they have more vomiting, more diarrhoea, and then bleeding, at that stage, they're pretty infectious and present a risk to anyone who's looking after them, either a relative or, or in my case, a, a healthcare worker. So as I'm sat here with you, if you had a boat, am I at risk of getting it? Am I at risk of getting it if you sat next to you on the bus? No, so I think, again, if I'm at the beginning of illness and not that sick, then you'd be fine. If it's a bit later on and maybe I've got vomiting, diarrhoea and a bit of bleeding coming, then, yeah, I wouldn't want to be sat next to me on the bus. So, specifically, just elaborating on that point, why are viral hemorrhagic fevers such as CCHF and Ebola endemic? Can't we eradicate them? Yes, it would be nice to eradicate them, but unfortunately they live in, a, in what's called a reservoir host of animals. And so Ebola, we think now it lives within a, within a bat population and every now and again comes into humans. And then Lassa and CCHF are truly endemic, so there's cases of those that exist every year in endemic countries. And again, it's because they live in Lassa in, in a type of rat, and then in CCHF uh, in a variety of animal hosts, and then we get infected from a tick normally. So specifically, why are viral hemorrhagic fevers a significant threat? Is it just because they're in an animal reservoir? Or? So the main problem is when they get into humans and then they pass, they have this risk of passing from person to person. And then from just having a couple of cases in humans, particularly with Ebola, and it, it can extend massively, such as we saw in West Africa with over 30,000 cases. And the side effects of that are huge. It can shut down a whole country at the time. And plus these diseases have a high case fatality rate. So for Ebola, if you get it, you've probably got a 50% chance currently of surviving if you get that disease. And in terms of all the emerging diseases in the world, where do VHFs sit in terms of threat-wise? I guess I'm somewhat biased because they're my <laughs> kind of area, so I'd always suggest they're a higher threat. But um, 
they've got to be right up there, which is why there's, there's a huge focus now on research and development. So of the nine pathogens now that WHO has identified for priorities in terms of epidemic risk, uh, three or four of them are viral hemorrhagic fevers. So why should the British military particularly be interested in VHS? So we should be interested in them because of the areas that we work. So uh, we've got troops in West Africa currently in Nigeria, and we've had troops in Sierra Leone before, and those two countries see the most numbers of Lassa fever in the world each year. So we have to be aware of that because that's where our troops are operating. CCHF is really widespread. So a lot of the countries that we'd operated in the Middle East or in Africa have CCHF too. And the other worry for us is, you know, we're determined to give the best possible care to our troops. And at the moment, we don't have good treatments for either. Mm. And being highly contagious and with high mortality rates, as you've already said, what's the risk of VHF being turned into a bioweapon? So I think that's always been a concern, that because they have this high case fatality rate and they can spread from person to person, of their use as a bioweapon. Now, I think a lot of that is restricted and not probably open source, but there has been some reports to suggest that some countries have weaponised them for use. And in terms of delivering that bioweapon, what would be the most effective way of doing it? So that's the challenge, I think, always with biological weapons, isn't it? How are you going to deliver that to the population? I think in countries such as the UK um, or, or in Europe or in the US, we've got pretty good public health infrastructure. So if it was delivered through a person who was sick, say a case of Ebola into the UK, that may cause an initial train of transmission into other people, but then our infrastructure would shut that down pretty quickly. So I don't think that it poses a massive threat to the UK through isolated imported cases if it was a human subject as a, as a biological weapon. Much more of the threat is really uh, in countries that we operate in where they're endemic. So a lot of people have heard about Operation Grip Rock, which was the UK military response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Do you mind just giving us a quick overview of what medical assets were deployed to that? Sure. So Operation Grip Rock was part of the UK response to Sierra Leone. So as the outbreak in West Africa, uh, a few countries took the lead in different countries. So the UK took the lead in Sierra Leone, the US and Liberia and France and Guinea. And so the military played a key role in all three countries from the different nations. But for Operation Grip Rock specifically, um, we set up a, an Ebola treatment unit dedicated to looking after healthcare workers. And that was really aimed at national staff who were on the front line against this disease in Sierra Leone and we're getting pretty poor care in some of the treatment units. Apart from that, there was other medical assets that deployed to train healthcare workers, which was a vital mission, trying to train national staff so they were safe to work inside the Ebola treatment units. Um, and then apart from that, there were other medical assets deployed, like a role too, um, to provide medical support to the deployed force. And also the, uh, the RFA Argus was deployed off for the same reason. So you are treating a wide range of um, patients? That's right. So the mission in the unit that I was working in at the beginning was... Um, to look after healthcare workers with Ebola virus disease. Actually, as the units got better, there wasn't as many healthcare workers to treat, so we also just treated other people from the Freetown area who got Ebola virus disease. But whenever you, you're running an Ebola treatment unit, maybe half the cases you'll see will be Ebola, then half of them might be a healthcare worker who turns up with a fever, who might have malaria, or another infection from the tropics. So not everything we saw was Ebola, it was other diseases too. And so, just so our listeners can really empathise with the situation these patients would have been in, if one of them got Ebola, what, what would it be like for a typical Ebola patient to come through your treatment facility? Yes, yeah, so it's pretty variable, actually, because some people have quite mild disease, um, almost asymptomatic infection, right through to patients who get really sick really quickly and die within about five or six days of getting the infection. So it's really variable. But a typical patient might be someone who starts with a fever, a headache, some aches and pains in their joints, and then that gradually progresses after about three days to have pretty profuse diarrhoea and vomiting. And in Ebola, the diarrhoea can be about two to 10 litres per day. So that's pretty horrendous for five days. 
And the problem with that is that patients are so pr profoundly weak that they can't replace their fluids orally. So they can't even luff, lift the cup of water or RRS to their mouth. And so that's when, really, I used to say, that's when we as doctors or nurses or paramedics working in units earn your money, when you're trying to replace those fluids, often through IV use, um, during that four or five days when they have profound diarrhoea and vomiting and are getting acute kidney injury and other problems associated with that. And practically, what did it look like when they came to the treatment facility itself? Were they immediately treated by people in suits and were they quarantined immediately? What did it look like practically? Yeah, so most treatment units would have a triage area. So people would turn up and then you'd have to assess them to see, do you, do you fulfil the case definition for Ebola? Have you had contact with someone with this disease? Or do you have a collection of symptoms that makes us suspicious to have it? And after that point, and if you said, yep, you, you look like you may have Ebola, you're a suspect case, we would then put on our equipment and then take them through to a, into the Ebola treatment area for assessment. So initially in the triage area you wouldn't, you wouldn't have full PPE on? No, it would depend on which Ebola treatment unit you were working okay. in, but normally you could come up with quite clever solutions as opposed to wearing PPE, which was pretty difficult to wear for a long period yeah. of time, uh, especially when it's 40 degrees heat. You could just have a degree of separation. So we used to put a perspex wall up. So if you have a perspex wall, the patient is behind that, you can still see them, communicate with them, and it avoids the requirement for you to wear PPE. Uh, or simply, at the beginning, we just keep a two-metre distance. If you keep a two-metre distance from them and probably wear a face shield, that's probably safe too. Just talking about the PPE, you described 40-degree heat. What, what was it like wearing it? How long could you last? Oh, so it was pretty intense wearing the, the level of PPE that you have to wear to protect yourself from getting these viruses. Um, there's a variety of different ones, uh, and I think we came up with quite a good solution that we thought about quite a lot in the military to wear. And it would depend on what time of day it was. So if it was in midday, probably an hour for most people was the maximum. We did some studies to work out you were losing about a litre of sweat per hour inside. But then in the night time or in early morning, you could, you could work inside for much longer, two or three hours without a big problem. Plus, we were fortunate in the, in the military Ebola treatment unit that it was air-conditioned. So again, that made quite a big difference for staff working inside. And we heard something just at the end of their, their, their sort of patient care. We heard a really interesting talk today that often there would be big celebrations of the healthcare professionals outside the treatment facility as the patient was discharged. Can, did you experience that? Can you tell us a little bit about why that would happen? Yes, so I think that, that was the normal from the very beginning. I remember in Guinea, we, we had the first survivor out of West Africa and um, everyone was pretty excited. He was a doctor, actually, uh, to get him out of the treatment unit. And they have huge amounts of stigma in terms of reintroducing mm. them back to their communities. People still, still think they're infectious. They can't understand why they've survived. And so part of the celebration was to sort of embrace them and show that they're not infectious, celebrate the fact you've survived a disease when all your family and you've seen many other people probably die inside. So it's a pretty special time. I remember one thing that um, we used to do a lot of hugging and a lot of shaking initially with these patients handshaking after they, they were leaving the treatment unit. We then read a few reports, it was from Germany actually, to suggest that even after they've cleared virus from blood, they could have prolonged virus and sweat. And so I must say, the amount of hugging and, and everything else in survivors probably reduced after we read that case report. But, um, but you're right in terms of, it's, really, it's important for staff too, because you know, if you work inside an Ebola treatment unit, you're going to lose a lot of patients. That's the nature of the disease. And so you therefore need to celebrate the ones that survive and escape. So we've seen quite a lot of papers coming out of Grit Rock. A lot of medical data was obviously collected. Um, was this an innovative approach to collect all this data systematically? Yeah, it was. So from the beginning, we tried to collect it, but we were always limited by lack of resources, so lack of staff, 
uh, to be able to really record the disease. So we knew for Operation Grit Rock we'd have a lot of nurses, a lot of doctors there in terms of ratio between patients and healthcare workers. So we made a concerted effort to record exactly what we were seeing to try and understand this disease a bit better. And the other thing that we were very fortunate for was to have a huge laboratory. So we sat down beforehand and worked out what tests we wanted to have, what was useful, and that you know, provided incredibly useful insights into the disease itself. And do you think that's a model for future deployments as well, collecting large data sets? I do. I think you have to justify why you're collecting it. Either it's for a disease that you don't understand and you need to know more about it, or to be able to audit your practice, to be able to understand this is what we're doing and this is what we need to have for the future or this is how we can improve. So I would never collect data just for the sake of it. You have to have a clear rationale on why you're doing that. So it's from your time in West Africa, what do you think have been the headline findings? So I think case management has moved a huge way. So I think if we, if we remember that before West Africa, most people with this disease got given ORS, so salty water, some multivitamins, and then we tolerated 70 or 80% of those patients dying. And then from the initial work that we did with partners in Guinea and then in Sierra Leone, we're able to demonstrate that you can really reduce that down to 40% or less if you're willing to intervene and place IV catheters, fluid replace their losses and give them electrolytes. And then I think the story from that then moved on to Grit Rock where through the military unit there we were able to offer HDU-level care, um, which was remarkable really in terms of the capability that was delivered. And then finally at the end of the outbreak, actually one NGO emergency offered full level 3 care to about 40 to 50 patients in Sierra Leone. So for me the main headline is that you can deliver high-level care even in a resource-limited setting. And what questions have still to be answered? So many. I still don't think we understand the pathogenesis, so we don't understand why people get sick and why some organs fail, particularly in Ebola, despite looking after thousands of cases collectively in West Africa. Um, and clearly we still need better treatments. So there's great trials that are just about to start in the DRC um, looking at uh, novel therapeutics now. So clearly we need better treatments. And just moving now on to looking at the future of VHS, we talked a bit about the past. So can we expect further epidemics? And which viruses in particular are you most concerned about? So unfortunately, yeah, undoubtedly, we can expect to see further epidemics. People forget about Ebola when it goes away, but it's still there in its reservoir host. And then like the ongoing outbreak in the DRC, it comes back into the human population. But still every year, we'll see cases of CCHF and cases of Lassa in countries where it's endemic. In terms of major advances, uh, in terms of to treat that, I think the main things will come in diagnostics. So to have better diagnostics to pick up these infections early uh, in new treatments and probably in vaccines. And on that topic of, of um, better diagnostics, where are, where are we at with point-of-care testing for viral hemorrhagic fevers? So we're a lot further on than we were five years ago. But clearly the problem with these diseases, they present in a non-specific way with fever, myalgia and headache, which is the same as many other tropical infections. And we know now that we need a PCR-based based diagnostic to diagnose that near the patient. So currently most of these um, tests are in reference laboratories, which might be three hours or four hours or a day and a half to travel on a motorbike, for example, away. So what we need is simplified devices where I take a sample of blood from you, put it into the machine, and an hour later it gives me a PCR-based diagnosis. And we're not that far away from that, hopefully within the next one or two years. There are already some platforms that can do that for Ebola too. And just to explain to our listeners who perhaps aren't aware of what PCR means, can you just briefly elaborate on that? So there's various different ways you can diagnose these infections, but PCR is looking essentially for the virus in blood. Ah, okay. So it's looking for the, for the RNA of that virus in blood, and when you get that, you definitely know that someone has Ebola. Fantastic. And, and away from point-of-care sort of diagnostic testing with, with PCR and things, is there any role for wearable technology in, in terms of picking up the signs and symptoms of, of these viral hemorrhagic fevers early? 
So that's something we thought about before, knowing about this technology being used um, in heat illness and, and by the endocrine sort of military research team. I don't think so, probably not. It would be nice to be able to wear it potentially as a healthcare worker and get a clue that your heart rate goes up or you're getting an early sign of a fever. But I think it's probably not practical at this stage. And then in, in, away from diagnosis and in terms of treating VHFs, where do you think the key innovations lie? Do you think the suits need to be made less cumbersome or do we need technologies that will allow us to work remote from the patient so we don't even need to put a suit on? Or is a Pyrex uh, screen already good enough for that? So, Perspect, sorry. <laughs> so I think um, there's already been some innovation. So now actually in the DRC, uh, they're using clear sort of um, plastic isolation cubicles where the patient is inside it has a dedicated airflow and staff members can be outside that individual cubicle seeing the observations in terms of when the blood pressure is taken and watching the patient all the time in 24-hour monitoring that's a real advance just in this last outbreak in the DRC mm-hmm. um, in terms of suits they need to get better in terms of have less of a heat burden so be more breathable but offer the same level of protection to splashes of blood or, or other things and in terms of remote monitoring, that's actually something we're looking at in Turkey. So whereby we can, particularly for patients in the HTU or ITU setting, we can have a degree of telemedicine and watch that from the outside um, with multiple different units at the same time. Brilliant. We end the podcast with a lighthearted section called the Quick Fire Five, essentially five questions um, which you're only allowed to answer with, with, with one word or very short phrase response, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so firstly, which VHF would you least like to contract? Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. Uh, you've got a patient with uh, suspected VHF. Which one test would you like to perform? A PCR. Will we ever be vaccinated as children for VHFs? Probably not. Uh, which innovative technology would you put your money on to transform VHF diagnosis or management in the next five years? near patient PCR platforms that are simplified. And what one resource or course would you recommend to our listeners uh, if they wish to learn more about what we've talked about today? Probably the online learning tools provided through the BMJ. I think they're pretty good for Lassa and for Ebola. Brilliant, thanks. Thanks to Major Fletcher for taking the time to talk to us. To our listeners, please keep an eye out on our Twitter, which has now changed to at Podcast for content related to today's podcast and for more episodes. Thanks.